It's about what training program do you have moving forward to ensure that everyone understands the lessons learned here and what the expectation is for each employee moving forward. And then if there's a customer-based business or if you've got a product-based business, you got to look at what was impacted and how do you start to go back to the market. And I think that's a lot of it. Recovery is about, in my mind, it's about healing, it's about unification, and it's about the communication strategy about the way forward. Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Doobie. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to the HIP podcast. We've got something a bit different for a few episodes. You're about to hear a live recording from our 2020 HIP conference panel on crisis management with special guest Jules Okafor, who brings her expertise in both cybersecurity and the law to help out organizations in crisis mode. To watch any of what you may have missed at this year's conference, head over to HIPConf, that's H-I-P, conf.com to watch it on demand. Enjoy. Today's theme is about crisis management, and we have a diverse panel to address the topic. My special guest today is Jules Okafor, uh, JD, Doctor of Jurisprudence. She is the CEO of Revolution Cyber and a cybersecurity professional who has combined her knowledge of the legal system and cybersecurity solution models into success stories across Fortune 500 industries throughout the US. A passionate security solutions visionary and strategist, Jules determines how to solve the company's problem, be it vulnerability management, incident response, or reducing the risk associated with technology or vendors, and then puts a plan into action. Jules graduated from UMass Amherst with a BA in communication, Fordham University, with an MA in public communication and media studies and received her JD from Temple University. Welcome, Kat. I'm sorry, welcome, Jules. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my, our next panelist is Kat Sweet. So Kat likes to say that uh, she secures the securers. She currently works on the product strategy team at Linux security startup Capsulate as a technical evangelist. Previously, she was a security analyst at Duo Security building out their multifaceted security operations program and handcrafting many puns about zero trust. She keynoted the inaugural DevSecOps Days Austin and has spoken at several security conferences, including LastCon, besides Las Vegas, where she serves on the staff, Circle City Con, and a handful of DEF CON villages. When she's not in security mode, you can find her bursting into song, picking unsuspecting locks, or dangling upside down. So there's no telling what's going to happen in this session today. Our third panelist is Guido Grillenmeyer. Guido is the chief technologist within the Enterprise Services Group at DXC Technology, which was formed in 2017 from the Enterprise Services Division of Hewlett Packard Enterprise and Computer Sciences Corporation. Based in Germany, Guido deals primarily with global Windows infrastructure deployments for large enterprise customers and has helped many customers secure their Active Directory. Guido is also a former 11-year Microsoft MVP. So welcome, everybody. Thanks, Sean. 
Thank you. In thinking about this panel and the the the, the crisis management theme of the day, um, my I think the the vast majority of session attendees probably aren't experienced in crisis management. Human nature being what it is, most IT professionals spend their career doing whatever they can to avoid a crisis, not how to handle a crisis. But of course, with the advent of widespread ransomware attacks, what uh, this morning uh, Modi Crystal called a pandemic with business logic, it seems like everyone in IT should have some grounding in crisis management. Uh, Jules, I know you've spent a lot of time working with a lot of organizations on crisis management. If, if we look at the ransomware scenario, uh, where some or all of a company's IT infrastructure is taken offline, what are some general principles an organization's management should follow? Or perhaps what do orgs typically, typically get wrong in a crisis situation? Great. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And thanks, Sean. It's a great question. So um, talking about ransomware, I think everyone's hearing about it, but not enough people are prepared for it to happen to them. To your point, I think IT teams and security teams pride themselves in being able to prevent attacks. But more and more, you're seeing companies' ability to respond is a difference between whether they stay in business or they go under. Hmm. A lot of what I see um, organizations do wrong is that they're typically not consolidating power in their response under one group of people. There tends to be this centralized and very fractured response where HR is doing its thing, legal's doing its own thing, uh, the, the external PR communication is separate, and then the internal security IT teams are working independently. Mm. Where I've seen the best result is when there is a committee formed that handles a lot of the governance about the ways to proceed with the new situation. So you have to assume that the business is in a different phase, and you've got to have a leadership team that is about responding to that particular incident. That's the first thing. So mm. centralizing power mm -hmm. under a team that has the ability to make decisions and purchase. Secondly, you need to have an external legal team who can figure out what the risk is. They typically have a forensic team attached to them who can bring people in to really start to mitigate the impact. Third, you need to talk to your accounting team. Um, the, the accounting team needs to figure out um, with, the, with the ransomware, who's going to be, what, what financial implications are in play and how does money need to be directed for the purposes of reducing, if there is a ransom, how will that be paid? Typically that's done in Bitcoin. So even though I'm telling you what to do in the back end, having a plan up front is, is preferred because it's very difficult to set up a Bitcoin um, um, relationship when you're in the midst of a, of, a, of a ransomware attack. I think finally, and it shouldn't be final, probably should be parallel, your insurance plan. So what does your insurance coverage say about um, insurance and what it is that you are covered by? Um, and, and what things will you be putting in place in order to, to demonstrate that this should be covered? So those are four really quick things I think that companies are getting wrong. And what I'll say as a tactical um, approach and in operations looking forward, being practical, what I, what I would advise people is make sure you have a manual way by which to run the company in the situation you need to take all of your systems down. So, so really a strong takeaway that I get from what you're just saying is to have an umbrella team, an umbrella organization, because 
all of these things that need to be addressed in a ransomware situation or a crisis in general are siloed and are probably not used to regularly talking to each other. Yes. And so you you find yourself in a situation that I like to describe uh, with where everybody's running around with their hair on fire. Yes. There's lots of shouting that happens if you don't have well under well planned communication set up ahead of time. Definitely. Okay. So Guido, you know, you and I before the before the conversation before we started the conversation we're talking about the advanced planning. What are some other advanced planning aspects from a an enterprise viewpoint that you know you have, when you have to prepare yourself for a, what you know in the Microsoft world is nicknamed the crit sit. Uh, what sort of thing would you? What sort of tips would you recommend? Or or what sort of experiences have you had? Exactly, there are definitely add-ons to what Jules already said because basically it all starts with that organizational preparedness. But besides the organizational preparedness uh, comes the technical preparedness, yeah? That means to even, uh, first of all, understand what makes out a crisis, yeah? Like when do you actually invoke that crisis plan? You have to understand, uh, like, uh, is it when half my company is not able to work? Is it only when everybody's not able to work? Whatever is, uh, is a crisis um, to your company could be different to a different company depending on your outage. So first of all, you need to understand the dependencies of your systems, yeah? Uh, and and uh, is a single service down? Um, is, is it a problem for me to run my business with that service down? Um, and that, of course, depends on what other dependencies you have on that service. If we do take uh, the authentication service, Active Directory, as an example, um, as that core service, if it were down, like uh, Andy Greenberg uh, this, this morning talked about the, uh, the outage at MERSC, um, that's major, yeah. That's like every every other service is is more or less uh, uh, unable to work without people actually being able to authenticate their machines, yeah. The different services down, like only mail, yeah, which is a critical service for many uh, for many companies. The the um, the approaches to fix it is different, yeah. And um, for each of these, you need to understand not only the dependency but also. Um, maybe the order of recovery for that particular service so that uh, you might um, actually invoke um, special um, uh, VIP groups that are not necessarily your VIPs of the companies, but your most critical users to keep your business running, to get them running first before you get, uh, let's say, uh, the 100% of your company back running. Maybe the first 20% are the most critical ones. You need to prepare this, yeah? So it's all about having documentation ready for what you need to recover, um, having even the, the, the support uh, contracts ready for the vendors that you need to work with potentially to recover a particular system, and, um, and then basically taking the plan step by step and understanding what you do need to do before the crisis actually hits you. So what I'm hearing is sort of an over, overall theme of, and this goes against human nature, right, which is, uh, oh no, everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. And so let's just say, no, this is, let's assume this is going to happen and let's plan for when it happens. This is, I guess you could, you know, in the technical world, this is assume breach, assume it's happened. And then what are, what are we going to do associated with it? You know, the planning and the procedures, Guido, like you're talking about the, the overall management group to, to have, I don't know what you call it, a crisis team or something like that to manage all of that. 
Um, Kat, you know, you're very experienced in the security operations center and security operations in general. What's what are some best practices or some ideas that you know that if people are listening now and they're running some kind of security operations, then they're like, wow, you know, uh, they're sort of addressing some things that I haven't thought about yet. What would you suggest? Um, could you clarify? Sure. I mean, your your experience. What what is a what is a well run SOC do? Uh, what does a well-run sock do in case of a, when a crisis happens? Gotcha. Uh, do you onboard people? How do you train people? Do you train people ahead of time so they don't flail around when everyone's hair is on fire? Yeah. Um, gotcha. Uh, cool. So, yeah, I think um, one of the things that's becoming even more common is um, doing drills like incident response tabletops where you simulate that a crisis has happened and how you would respond to it mm. um, uh, or something that's more like functional and not just like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, but like something has actually happened and an analyst may not know that it's a drill. Um, mm. So, uh, we, um, I've been on both the participant side and the planning side. And one of the things that you can do is identify like, what are, what are some of the weaknesses in our current procedures? Where are our gaps? And then use that to inform um, what, kind of, what kind of test you run, what kind of drill you run. And sometimes it's not just around like, what don't we have doc a documented playbook for, mm -hmm. but things like what team are we not working well with? What team would we like to improve our communications with? And then let that drive process improvements. Um, I think one of the really important things is even if you don't have, you're never gonna have a clear like end-to-end -end playbook for every single type of incident ever. It's just there, there are surprises that come up, but one of the things that you can do um, to build in a, a quicker uh, triage path uh, is having clear paths of escalation based on like, you know, the system owners, the systems um, administrators, like who do I reach out to if Slack is down and Slack is where our SIM uh, alerts are going? Um, who do I reach out to if our, if our AWS bill is abnormally high and uh, there might be a crypto miner, things like that. Um, just being able to um, identify who to even bring into the room when you're working an incident is really important. Um, so it, the incident response are always going to have some variation and some inconsistencies. So that kind of makes it all the more important to find places where you can build in consistency and repeatability. Um, other, otherwise it's a recipe for chaos and uh, burnout. <laughs> Well, I, I could certainly see that. It seems like a lot of what you're talking about is the more you can put standard operating procedures in place, the less you depend on the, 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 the failings or the vulnerability of the human being in a stressed out situation. So well, it also is just about setting expectations up front. Um, like if you bring somebody in from the SRE team to help manage a crisis, they may have very different expectations of what they're supposed to do in a security incident um, that might not align with like, you know, the need to preserve forensic data or preserve current state. Um, so if you just 
throw someone at a problem and say, fix this, you may need to give some consistent guidelines around how and what, what you're asking. So again, this is this ties back into the preparation aspects of it. So add on that preparation aspect, uh, Sean, because I, I think um, again uh, the organizational aspect is is totally critical. But from a from a preparation technical preparation standpoint, um, I, I fully recall uh, an issue that occurred where everything had been planned out perfectly in the sense of recoverability, um, a backup, and recovery. Uh, documentation uh, was written, was prepared for in case of a problem, two uh, steps ABC. Yeah, and um, at that time, that um, that documentation was stored uh, uh, on a system that was, uh, of course, protected uh, through Active Directory and and groups. Yeah, that you that yeah. you had members of to to actually read uh, that documentation, and it sounds so. You know, it's so simple to, to, to forget that, of course, you cannot necessarily reach that documentation in the case of the DR. And again, we have um, plenty of methods to have offline, um, um, you know, copies of, of uh, documentation or protected in a different way uh, away from your core um, authentication system. Of course, we can think about Azure and, and uh, um, offloading Data from on-prem to some uh, off uh, uh, to some cloud-based uh, repository and whatnot, but you still need to prepare it. Yeah? You, need to, you need to be aware of what needs to go where, so that in the case of uh, an outage, you have that documentation accessible because recoverability. Even if you bring in all sorts of new specialists that help you to actually get that the vendors, uh, Microsoft, uh, Citrix, you name them that you might need to work with for recoverability they need your input yeah and uh, of how the system uh, was set up you know what are the details etc and um you cannot reach that easily um uh, you know it's a, it's a simple step that people forget and since it has been forgotten i just wanted to remind people don't forget to ensure that you have some out of band access to your critical documentation right well you know we we do disaster recovery when we we do uh, product implementations. We do we do discovery on a company's Active Directory, for example, and 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 invariably point out something where they haven't thought about, where they have some aspect of it, and they they say, "Well, you're not going to be able to get to that." And I I'm certainly aware of stories where uh, organizations couldn't get into their own computer rooms uh, yeah. to to remediate because critical systems were down. Yeah. So I I joke about you know the chair through a window strategy to, to get in and, and do something like that. So a lot of this goes around, we're talking about, essentially we're sort of working around human nature and human frailty. Um, Jules, you know, you're spent a lot of time working on these aspects of it. What, you know, if to the, let's say the IT pro that's listening to this, what sort of things should they be aware of? Like, you know, look, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be thinking clearly about X, Y, or Z, or remember these basic principles to keep your sanity during a crisis, help them sleep better. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think that with regard to IT professionals, um, I want to speak to the IT leaders. I think one of the areas that is often 
um, critical is the communications across the organization. Um, I think crisis management is often about communicating to the different groups what their responsibilities are and what the and being transparent about what's happening. I think a lot of times um, the IT team, the security team, set about just trying to get it done, getting it mitigated, getting it stopped. They're not very good about communicating what's happening, um, at least an initial thought about what happened, and then co controlling communication. So what you want to do as an attorney, um, you don't want every IT person communicating across the organization, what you want to do is identify the one person who can communicate. And then what you want to do is pick up the phone. So if cell phones are possible for usage, do not write down things that will become liabilities later. Don't type, you know, I told you guys we should have paid for this control months ago. Um, that's not the time to write that down. <laughs> what you want to do is one, I would suggest to, um, to stay calm. Um, I would suggest communicating to your supervisor and then waiting for direction. But what I wanna do is communicate to IP leaders that it becomes important for you guys to have a united and common communication and message that goes out. And then to have a period of ongoing communication where that's continuously being being shared. Um, one, one incident that I think is relevant and it's not ransomware, but you know, the idea is that there was a person who indicated that they had access to systems and were willing and were asking for an amount. It's the Twitter hack of 2020, right? And so that was very public. I don't think Twitter could have prepared and no IR plan could have prepared them for it. But what they were good about was telling you initially what they thought happened. Then they told you at, on an ongoing basis via social media, what they continue to find, but they were doing it in a way to mitigate people's fears. Because what happens was when employees get nervous, they start to talk, they start to go outside the company. It's gotta be a united communication out. And so if I'm an IT security analyst or I'm in operations, when people come to me, my job is to uh, communicate only when I'm, what I am um, approved to communicate. I am also only to share in ways that relieve people's fears, that don't make people go crazy. So in the idea of crisis management, my suggestion to IT leaders, IT operations, communicate what you're approved to communicate, allow your supervisor to tell you what that is, and then only communicate if you can be calm. Otherwise, don't do it. It will create additional liability for the organization. Jules, um Allow me a question, John. You're, you seem to be on mute right now, but yeah, but um, on on um, uh, on on reducing fear in, in in the company, of course, one way to prepare is that insurance topic, right? So basically, making sure that you do have a cyber insurance of some sort. But I understand they don't always pay. It really depends on on your preparation, doesn't it? Yes. So um, not all insurance companies are built equally. Um, and even the best insurance companies are still in a fog about um, what they think a, a, a um, insurance, like what coverage should include. Um, and so a lot of times it's, uh, it's subject to interpretation. And because they're businesses, they want to insure as little as possible. So what happens in a crisis management situation is 
you know, in addition to all the things I recommend you do, you call your insurance provider and say, we're in the middle of having this ransomware attack. You know, we, you know, this is, and this is usually the attorney or some financial CFO. Um, you know, this is what our policy says. We'd like to figure out here, here are the, the liabilities, the losses. And what they'll say is, um, we'd like to have somebody talk to you. They slow you down. They talk to you about your coverage. And then they say to you, you remember this little fine line? So take a look at page 86 on the bottom there. It doesn't cover ransomware. Or it doesn't cover a situation where ransomware was, um, uh, was an impact as a result of some other loss that we do not cover or some other control you didn't put in place that we need to verify. So mm -hmm. what happens with insurance is it is only as good as what you've done to prevent it. Insurance is not a good measure of prevention. It is even not good for response. It is only as good as what you've done to make sure that you can mitigate the loss on your own. Insurance will fill a tiny gap of your loss. And if you're a really big company and you have a bank of attorneys, great. If you're mid-size or smaller, you should not be relying on your insurance coverage to do the things that you should do with regard to investments in your security controls. Fully agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fully agree. That's a great point. Uh, go ahead, Kat. You're going to say something. Oh yeah, I was just going to say. I think um, I think insurance to to me seems like a thing that is a, a, that some people feel is you know a, we're going to throw money at this problem when it's really a process problem. Um, it's also if you think about it, like life insurance. You get life insurance when you die. You're probably better investing in your health while you're living. <laughs> That's kind of what I think about cyber insurance. That is a very quotable But for health insurance, and if you do have an issue, you, you are willing to pay for medicine, whatnot. For a cyber attack with ransomware, I'm 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 curious or I'm surprised that, that you quickly speak of paying that ransomware, yeah, which of course very often doesn't turn out to actually help you. Yeah. Yes. So that's a controversial, a controversial conversation. In fact, um, the FBI and other organizations are prosecuting um, security professionals and companies that pay ransomware to people who are on the um, the sanction list or or in which we cannot do business. Mm -hmm. So it is it is now. Um, unfortunately, it is now held against you to pay ransomware. Here's the dilemma that was previous. So when you think about the Sony attack, right, yeah. um, 2013, um, think about how much money they would have lost if they had not paid whatever the cost was. So that was malware, but it was also ransom, right? So think about the business, the business cost. It's like they're asking for this small amount and if for the small amount, they'll give you a copy. They're not giving you back. Let me, let's just be honest. You're not getting all your data back and no one's opened it. Not, no, it will be available on the dark web, but you have a copy to continue doing business. We also have the Uber situation back in 2016, where they actually filed charges against the CISO for having paid the ransomware. I personally believe it is an unfair situation for a CISO to be placed in, to be filed charges against in situations where security typically isn't the one who makes the decision, right? Yeah. Security leaders, IT leaders are put in a very tough situation where typically they're not the one who makes that decision. It's either a GC, it's either the CEO or the board. And yet I find that security leaders can be found as scapegoats. So what I suggest as CISOs is that they document 
CIOs, document everything you've done. And what will happen is that communications and transparency, the fact that you told the FBI when it happened, here's what they're prosecuted for. Uber's prosecuted for not telling the FBI when it happened. So if you can communicate that you told the FBI that you put out breach notifications, they have a less case against you that you deliberately and willfully paid ransomware without without actually um, with the intention to actually um, either either um, pay someone on the, on the sanctions list or to actually uh, um, for the benefit of the company, knowing full well what the implications were. So you have to put it down. But the, the issue with crisis management is you do what is in the best interest and it's a natural tendency to react. You have to have another person who is calmly documenting everything. And that will reduce your legal liability. It will improve your business continuity and it will provide you with lessons moving forward on how to prevent the thing from happening again. You know what this this comes back to a lot of what we've talked around is is a phrase that has been knocked around for many years and I've been using a lot more recently, which is people, processes, and technology. Yes. So you have the IT pros that want to just throw technology at every solution because that's what they're comfortable with. Yes. They're typically not people people. So this is where Jules, you were talking about the communications yes. being so important. And and Kat, you were talking about the importance of process, you know, to ensure that the frail people can at least sort of channel along in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, and and so maybe it's people, processes, technology, and preparation to go yeah. with that. The four Ps. Well, so we have a question in from the audience. Uh, and the question is, how do you deal with the many vendors all trying to help, but none willing to take responsibility? Oh. During a crisis or just in general? In, during during a crisis. Uh, this is, they're specifically saying in large crises in large companies. Re review your contract and then fire them when you get a chance. <laughs> no, no, legitimately, the it, it, there are so many bad vendors. Um, there are so many, there are so many, and, and I'll say, let me step back. There are so many companies that are incentivized on revenue, but not on service delivery and not on integrity, right? Our industry really heavily incentivizes on how much money you can make, whether you can scale and whether you can show ongoing growth. It does not incentive, it does not provide incentives for companies to deliver in times of crisis. So, but there are a few companies who do. So what you need to do is go through all of your contracts prior to a crisis, make sure you're negotiating with your security, with your security vendor, so you understand if this scenario happened, what would be your obligation to us? What could we count on you for? And then you need a matrix where you can outline what that is that you could you could uh, require them for, what the SLA is, and who the person is to whom you would contact. And again, this this ties back to preparation. Yes, I would add to that that um, uh, the companies, uh, your vendors. The, the question is really take responsibility for what, right? So because uh, um, it may very well be that you need uh, uh, many vendors to work together to, to, to recover your business fully. And that responsibility can only be taken internally, yeah? To coordinate between them, yeah? And that's where that crisis management teams come in. That's where that organizational uh, structure that you need to have in place uh, that we discussed right at the start uh, needs to come in. That's the preparation 
before a crisis occurs, actually been uh, going through um, test scenarios. It's not uncommon to have yearly test scenarios in the financial uh, services industries and probably many others as well, but I've lived through it in the financial services industries where you take down a whole data center yeah, and uh, you mimic an outage. yeah, And, um, and uh, honestly, that's the most common outages that are being practiced. And that is also what IT is best prepared for to encounter because that's where you built in resilience. Yeah, You have that second data center and ensure that uh, uh, systems keep on running. What's not tested easily is uh, uh, all your disks are getting encrypted where uh, it doesn't matter that you have two data centers, yeah, and 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 those type of malware attacks, yeah, that's more difficult to prepare for. And still, you need to have at least an understanding if that were to occur, how fast could I actually recover from uh, you know service A, B, C uh, being affected, yeah? Like we said, beginning and understanding those dependencies, yeah, it it uh, it all ties together. This is where having some. Uh... Oh God, I almost said synergy, but basically synergy that like some open lines of communication on an ongoing basis between security and um, uh, ops is really key because sometimes there will be some kind of service outage and people's uh, ops' first question won't always be security related and um, being able to recognize when they might need to tag in the security team is really critical. The, the two things also um, to say is one, if you're a company that has really tenacious and high tension uh, negotiations, the problem is that that tension when a crisis happens is never forgotten. And therefore you have less of an, you have less uh, interest from your vendor in trying to help you. So if you are nickel and diming, like if you're somebody who's like, and I want every cent accounted for, then when it comes time to help you, out of the goodness of their hearts, they won't. Or they'll tell you, this is what we're going to charge you to help you. You have to be, it has to be a fair relationship. And I find a lot of companies so make their processes painful because they're like, well, vendors want to win business. And then something bad happens and they expect vendors to jump. That's the problem. You've got to build good faith in your relationships up front. Secondly, what I typically uh, recommend to my customers when they go through crises, Talk to the person who sold you the service in the first place. They typically have a desire and you have leverage with them still to either upsell business or to expand business with you. And they, if they have the right influence, can have other people working with them to help you out. So you should go back to the person who sold you if you can't get your contract to work or you don't have a service person or account manager. And that way you'll have leverage. In crisis, I'll tell you, everything is about power and leverage. It becomes very critical who has the power and what you can leverage and 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 in how quickly. So you want to have that in place already. But I want to tell you, go to the places you have the most leverage first. Your insurance policy, yes. Your your law firm, yes. The people, your vendors who you have the best relationships, yes. And then work your way down. Makes sense. That's really yeah, on a note. Um, if um, like to go back to building things into the process, if um, your incident response team isn't the same as the people who are doing your initial vendor security investments when you first bring vendors on board, um, make sure that questions that address these problems are built into the process. Like what, lo what logs, if any, can you access when there's an incident? 
who are who are we to reach out to? Um, like you mentioned, uh, what's the SLA? Um, things like that um, yeah. for the initial vetting and not just right before something happens. So, um, yeah. Well, we're totally getting that question actually also from the audience. It's actually interesting uh, to read what would be the recommendation on dealing with a crisis when the contingency or the R plans that we talk about should exist, yeah? If they don't exist or aren't adequate, yeah? And and how do you handle a crisis then? And 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 uh, my my uh, thought to that is first of all um, your 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 um, organizational structure as to like how do you build your critical team? Who, who does the communication? What is your potential um, uh, tool that you actually use to communicate with? Because your main tool might be down. Um, those are hopefully prepared. If not, of course. Uh, uh, can be established somewhat quickly these days if you at least have internet access, yeah, or phones, yeah, to to to, uh, to communicate with your most uh, critical people. But knowing who are the folks in your company uh, owning the service uh, is is a key start to get the right internal people involved to also uh, you know uh, understand uh, the impacted system. It's a big difference if you know the the whole company is down. Uh, than if the specific service is down, but you do need to know who is responsible for the different services. A smaller shop, it's easier uh, to probably call the one guy that that manages uh, uh, the whole team and and get get the team together. But in a larger shop, that becomes more difficult to understand who actually has the permissions uh, to uh, to work on system A, B, and C. Yeah, but but that's still where you would start. Yeah, so if you don't have a plan, you still uh, start with building a small um, uh, well, war room. We we call it inviting the right people into that war room and ensuring, very likely, if this is a what we call a P one, like a a, a highest uh, uh, outage uh, uh, scenario, um, then it's like a twenty four seven activity. Yeah, there's no break in between. If you're a large enough company, it's uh, with uh, a, a follow the sun approach where where uh, another leader takes over the work with uh, other members to maybe check more logs, uh, recover systems, uh, building new systems should be required for the for the recovery of data and whatnot. And, and of course, uh, talk to the vendors, even the vendors. Microsoft being a great example here has perfect handovers of a crit situation for, uh, you know, um, keeping the communication going. Yeah. And with very fast uh, response, in a high incident scenario, so to invoke, yeah. So what about the typically? So we, I, I think, impl what we've been implicitly talking about a lot is the during the attack scenario. What about recovery? Let's. I think people don't spend enough time talking about recovery. If they're, if you think about the NIST cybersecurity framework, they're very focused on the front end of it, but the. And again, it's human nature. Oh no, we've we, we've got it all figured out. But the reality is, you know, what's the old saw? You know, they only have to be right once, and we have to be right every time. So, what's some of topics about about recovery after uh, a crisis that uh, may not be so well known or is are worth exploring for a few minutes? Um. So, so with regard to recovery, I would agree with you that I, I don't think that gets en enough focus. Um, recovery is about the healing 
right? It's about the healing of the organization and really starting to do the forward-looking pieces. Um, recovery should not begin until you can make sure that the, that everything's mitigated and there isn't any more data leakage and, and there's nothing going out and there isn't any fear of additional attack. Um, once that is clear, um, and, and I was gonna say in your last question, there should be an open conference line, whether it's phones that are having conference calls or a Zoom line or a WebEx line, whatever the line is, there should be an open line for the people who are coming together and determine exactly who's going to be in what meeting, but it's a 24 by second operation as a, you know, We've all been on those. Oh, yeah. What I would say that to be focused on next is insurance because there's probably in the recovery, a lot of um, forensic, you know, th there's an understanding of the company by then about how much is lost and what the cost will be. So. Um, finance and the, and the law firm will keep tabulating what the costs are, but you then want to start to figure out where you can get additional funding from. So that's the financial aspect. As it relates to process, what you want to start to look at is, okay, so what happened? Why did it happen? How can we make sure it doesn't happen again? And that's a process idea. So we, we want to start to look at the, the gaps and we want to figure out, okay, so what's the forward-looking plan? So, you know, for for BC and DR, what do we need to do differently, right? Um, and how do we get back online? That's So that's the technology components. How do we get back online and working as we once were? So all of those things, the people process technology has to be working in unison. Um, it's gotta be three separate kind of uh, swim lanes that are operating to get the company back as it was together to really integrate and reunite the company. Mm. Because in crisis, it separates and decentralizes in order to sustain itself. But you've got to work on recovery is bringing it all back. And then you've got to work on, and I'll always say, it's that communications piece. It's how do you how do you allay the fears of the employees about what just happened? It's about what training program do you have moving forward to ensure that everyone understands the lessons learned here and what the expectation is for each employee moving forward. And then if there's a customer-based business or if you've got a product-based business, you got to look at what was impacted and how do you start to go back to the market. And I think that's a lot of it. Recovery is about, in my mind, it's about healing, it's about unification, and it's about the communication strategy about the way forward. I could see the, the difficulty of avoiding scapegoating and, and, you know, let's get things fixed, but let's not Point fingers. Yeah, it's point because it's just human nature. Yeah, I wanted to avoid that part. Um, yeah, don't don't point to the next guy and say you should have done your job better. That's one advice I've got. <laughs> I've got for you. Yeah, yeah somebody in fact posted in the questions uh, applying DevOps and agile methodology, and one big um, undercurrent of DevOps is a culture of blamelessness. Yep. So I think that's really key here. That's good. And, and so try to plan your recovery in two weeks uh, sprints, right? Could be a bit too <laughs> yeah. No, but, but of course, agile methods is is uh, I think uh, most won't have any other way uh, to go at this. Yeah, it, it, it's it's small targets. It's it's uh, um, uh, goals that you try to reach in in uh, lowest possible time. Um, uh, and and again, ideally, you have tested if. This is the first time uh, a company is then recovering with 
you know, going uh, through it with, uh, the hard way and learning by doing, um, then, of course, the biggest tip or the biggest uh, benefit that they have is to not just let it go and go back to normal business, but use that experience to now learn from it, lessons learned, documented into a, a contingency plan, into a, a, a DR documentation for the future events. Yeah, Not just because there's a lot of things learned during those outages, always, always. And too often, that knowledge gets lost. So uh, Andy Jones, who is the the uh, who is a CISO of Maersk did about a 30 minute podcast about lessons learned in Maersk in disaster recovery when your whole environment has been torched. Uh, and it's very interesting. I'm sorry, Kate, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I think at a much more micro level too, um, one thing that's not talked about enough is need for recovery of the people who are involved in the incident, especially <laughs> the incident responder. Um, like one of the, like, I think the most burned out times I've ever felt working in security is when I had back-to-back -back incidents during an on-call week. And um, if there's something particularly brutal, even if it's not something on the, in the, the realm of a giant uh, data breach, um, if, if you're not giving your uh, incident responders uh, sufficient recovery time, they're not gonna be able to do their jobs as well. And, even if you sort of learn to manage the emotions that are involved with incident response, you know, the, the discomfort around uncertainty and the chaos of a bunch of threads happening at the same time, um, it's still somewhat uh, taxing even in the best of circumstances. So this is where redundancy in roles and time to recover uh, afterwards is particularly important. That makes sense. So as, as a final question, uh, we have a question from the audience here. Uh, and the question is, how do you communicate when your corporate directory no longer exists to organize a recovery? And I guess my, my uh, rephrasing perhaps of that question is, what are good communication channels to use when you're in the middle of crisis management that are you may be able to rely on? And I don't know if that means things like WhatsApp or I've heard Facebook. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, Jules, do you have any suggestions? Um, so I, 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 th I thought I was hearing both how and to whom. Um, and so I guess the question to whom is communicate one level up hmm. um, because typically at the, you know, like executive level, they've got a lot of that kind of built in. So they know who to communicate to. Um, my suggestion is that you minimize communications across so to different, unless unless you're the person who dis, who, who discovered it um, and you kind of want to vet it, I would say communicate up. The minute you feel like something bad's really happening, communicate to your boss and then allow them to then dictate to you what to say. And I think that's what I was saying. Um, what I suggest, and I'm biased uh, because I'm both a communications professional and a an attorney, um, I suggest you communicate as little as possible. I'm, I'm almost the kind of person that's like, okay, if no one asks you a question, don't answer it. Um, but <laughs> well, what I would say is um, use WhatsApp, um, Signal, uh, things that are able to disappear. Um, don't don't use like the company Slack channel. That that's bad. Um, I would say do do a lot of one to one communication 
until the company indicates to you the proper channel for all those kinds of communications. But I would say one-to-one, -one, pick up a phone whenever you can. It's better you pick up a phone whenever you can. And I think, uh, uh, I fully agree, but I think the question is also um, regarding the, let's say, the technical aspect of, of the, the situation that you can no longer use your traditional communication tools, mail, uh, as, as a simple example, yeah, or Teams, if, if uh, um, uh, whatever, even your, your connectivity uh, uh, to, to the internet and authentication to, to Azure were down for whatever reason, yeah? Uh, and I think this is where ideally you do have for your critical um, uh, members, and that's uh, ideally the preparation work that's done, uh, those phone numbers ready that you don't need to look them up in the in the in a directory. Yeah, you have to have them available. The phone numbers of the managers, the VIPs, the the uh, executive uh, uh, leadership uh, guys to, to keep them informed um, in in a situation that you cannot uh, inform every employee of the company. Um, that's unfortunate, but that's probably less of a problem um, that you would worry about in the instance of that uh, outage. Depending on the situation, you could, uh, of course, you might still have access to, or the users might still have access to a homepage of the company using the, uh, using announcements there, yeah, where they might not need to um, use uh, the central directory or whatnot, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, don't do that in the sense of written down. Yeah, okay, this is uh, exactly where um, decisions probably need to be made, what to communicate where in, in the right way. But we need to differentiate between organizational and let's say legal uh, um, topics of communication and just information to employees. By the way, um, our systems are down. You can uh, uh, try to come back in, I don't know, uh, four hours. Yeah, uh, give, give, give the crisis team some time to, to, to uh, work on a solution and, and, and build up um, uh, proper resources uh, for you to work on again. And, and typically yeah. help desk teams have a phone number to call, try your help desk. They typically sure. are also given. Um, very good, very good point. Like the central help desk number, yeah. inform them so they can inform the employees. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and Jules answer still definitely applies about um, encrypted uh, apps like Signal and WhatsApp. Um, I liked the comment in the questions about uh, carrier pigeons being an option. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah that's definitely the, uh, the offline communication. Thank you, everybody, for a really interesting conversation with all sorts of really good insights, at least for me, and I'm, I think hopefully for the audience as well. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.